You are listening to Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Mike Corgan. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 is where we're going to be starting this morning. And while you are turning there, uh, one, thing that, uh, one thing that you should know about me, and probably you should know about my wife as well, is that we are big movie fans. I don't know about any of you. I don't know how many of you enjoy movies. Um, back before uh, March of 2020, those were those things where we would all go into a big room and look at a big screen. I don't know if you remember. Uh, you know, I think maybe uh, my wife and I are probably, we're a part of the minority, I think, at this point of, of people our age that enjoy going to the movies. I know streaming is a huge thing right now. Uh, but one of, some of my favorite types of movies are those movies where it's one story that's just told over a series of different films. You know what I mean? So my favorite movie series of all time is The Lord of the Rings. Uh, there's also Star Wars. I have my own lightsabers at home. Yes, I'm that guy. Uh, and uh, But I think if we're going to talk about one of the most incredible feats of storytelling in cinematic history, really, we'd probably have to look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Again, I am a student pastor, so comic book and superhero movies uh, come up regularly. Uh, but when we're talking about the Marvel movies, we're talking about a series of, of uh, well over 20 movies over a span of 10 plus years telling really one story all throughout. And one thing that I remember very vividly was I remember seeing the movie Avengers Infinity War uh, in the theaters. And uh, I'm going to give a spoiler alert at this point. And if you haven't seen Infinity War by now, then maybe that's a you problem, okay? Like, Jesus loves you, that's okay. Um, But there's a point in that movie where the bad guy Thanos, he snaps his fingers, and you start to see all of our beloved heroes start to turn into dust, right? They start to, you know, in our minds, you know, we're watching all of our, some of our favorite heroes die on the screen, and you're like, how could this possibly be happening, right? And one thing I found interesting, because there's a part where Spider-Man starts to fizzle away and Spider-Man dies. And, and it's, it was interesting to me because I was watching this and I was like, I remember Disney had already announced that there was going to be a Spider-Man sequel. And I'm watching him die on the screen. Like, and it didn't seem to compute in my mind, right? What I knew to be true wasn't lining up with what I was watching before my eyes, Amen. right? And what, what I think, what we, if we're honest with ourselves, we see this a lot in our walk with Christ, don't we? We see this a lot in our walk with Christ. You know, there's some of the most encouraging passages of Scripture that you can hear are the ones that, you know, that we, you know, we write them down and we put them on our, on our mirror in the morning that we can look at those post-it notes, right? Maybe some of you, if you're like me, and you're, it's struggle to wake up, you see that verse, you know, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. As you wipe out the crusts from your eyes, you're like, yes, I am, Lord. You know, whatever it is. You know, we have these encur- encouraging verses. Some of the most encouraging verses that uh, I can think of, John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal kill and destroy I came that you may have life and have it abundantly right Romans 8:28 and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose Psalm 16:11 you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy Psalm 126:5 those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy man these are encouraging verses aren't they Right? We read these verses and they just, they just bring a smile to our face. They bring, they bring joy to our heart. The fact that we have a heavenly father that is sovereign over the universe that desires to give us good 
things. He desires good for you and for me, and in him is fullness of joy. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that life is without obstacles. Right? I think we make that clear as we read through the scriptures. I mean, Paul, as he is writing Philippians, is writing from prison. Right? So this does not mean that life is, is void of any opposition, void of any struggles. But what it does mean is that in spite of those things, no matter the season, good times, bad times, we have assurance and promises through scripture that we have a joy that is unshakable. Right? That, as the old song says, it's joy unspeakable and full of glory. This is, a, this is good news for us this morning. But for some of you, and probably for many, you know, you hear, you know, we read through Philippians and we hear about this joy or this peace or, or this assurance. And maybe you, you hear pastor after pastor get up and talk about the joy that we have in Jesus and the assurance and the peace that is ours through Christ. And you kind of feel like I did in that movie theater. Okay, like I know that's supposed to be true, but that's really not lining up with where I see myself right now, right? It's like I know that should be true, but it it seems to conflict with what I'm experiencing in my life. See, we as Christians, we live in this, we live in this constant, we live kind of suspended between two realities. The reality of what we know to be true that is declared through Scripture and the apparent reality of what we experience every day. Right? And we kind of, we're kind of like a pendulum swinging between these two realities. And one thing I want you to understand this morning is that the promises of Scripture are true even when it is hard to see their fulfillment. Amen. Amen. See, we kind of swing, but we, we kind of live suspended between these two realities, right? Many of us know the promises of Scripture, the promises of peace and joy and assurance and confidence and contentment. And then we look at the reality of our lives and we seem to be experiencing anything but that. We know in Galatians 5, right, the the fruit of the Spirit, we know that we are empowered to have self-control through the Holy Spirit. But we struggle so often to experience that self-control sometimes, right? Especially on I-4 at around 5.30. (laughs) You know, it's like, man, I should have this, but I just don't. So many Christians come into church on Sunday morning, and maybe this is you, that you hear about the promises of what we should have as Christians, and you see about this joy that we're supposed to have, and in order to give off the impression that you're a good Christian, you put on a a veneer of joy that you really don't feel, right? And what we have is instead of the body of Christ leaning on one another, we have the body of Christ pretending to be something we're not. Why we see these promises of joy. And maybe this morning you're saying, man, I've been, I've, I, I know I should have this peace, but it feels like those promises are true for everyone but me. Or maybe you're even tempted to just doubt if these promises are true at all. But I have good news for you this morning, that God's promises are not dependent on your experiences. God's promises are not dependent on your experiences. You see, our job as Christians is not to hold Scripture up to the light of our experiences to see whether Scripture is true. Our job as Christians is to hold up our experiences up to the light of Scripture to see, does my life line up with what I know I should be experiencing? And if not, how can I narrow the gap between what I know and what I experience? How can I narrow the gap between what I know to be true and what I experience every 
day. And that's what I believe Paul is explaining to us here in Philippians chapter 4. So I encourage you, if you would, stand with me as we read Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4 and reading through verse 9. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we know that your word says that your word will accomplish that which you have set for it to do. And God, we ask that your word will accomplish your will this morning. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, hearts that are receptive, and ears to hear what it is that your spirit would have to say through us this morning through your word. God, thank you. praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So if, as we talk about the, the, narrowing, the narrowing of this gap, right? As we talk about the narrowing of this gap between what we know to be true and what we experience that seems to conflict, we want to narrow that gap. There's probably no greater example of this than the Apostle Paul, right? There's no greater example of this than the, than the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul has shared on numerous accounts and numerous occasions of all the struggles that he has endured due to the gospel. He's writing this letter from prison. Paul's life was anything but easy, anything but his best life now. It was difficult. It was, it was, but here's the thing we know is that he constantly reiterated the joy and the peace and the contentment that he had in Jesus no matter what. And as we conclude the book of Philippians, Paul has been, is giving his closing remarks here. In verses 4 through 9, Paul is once again speaking of rejoicing in the Lord. This is a common theme from the, first, from the first verse of Philippians all the way to the end is this joy. He talks about this joy that we have in Christ. But there's a common theme in these six verses, though, and I, I'm interested to see if you, if you noticed it. But the common theme that he has here is this idea of peace. Right? In verse 7, Paul mentions the peace of God. In verse 9, Paul alludes to the God of peace. See, the two uses of this word here have a connotation with them that is unique strictly to Christianity. I love the definition of what this word peace means here. It says, it says the tranquil state of a soul that is assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and is content with its earthly lot. Man, doesn't that sound beautiful? Doesn't that just sound beautiful? I mean, this, is, this peace is a gift that is promised to all believers. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians here, right? Paul is writing to Christians in Philippi. He's writing to a church. So this is not an invitation to enjoy, this is not an invitation to enjoy a peace that they did not already have access to. Do you notice that? See, he's not writing to say, hey, you can have peace with God. Right? He's, not writing. he's writing to Christians who already have this peace made available to them, and he is writing to them, encouraging them to enjoy the peace that is already available to them. 
So what we have to understand is that it is possible, based off this passage and really all throughout Scripture, it is possible for us to have peace with God, but not necessarily experience the peace of God in our everyday life. Does that make sense? We struggle with this. Paul is inviting them to close the gap between knowledge and experience regarding God's peace. And that is what we are looking at this morning. So the first thing I want us to look at is attaining peace. Attaining peace. Before we get into, you know, how we attain this peace based off what Paul is saying here, it's important for us to understand what we mean by God's peace. Right? This peace that passes all understanding. What do we mean by that? What's the difference between God's peace, the peace that God gives, and the peace that we often ask for? See, the promise of God's peace is a, is a promise that many of us maybe are aware of, but so few of us actually seek. And what I mean by that, and I'm not saying that we don't desire peace. I believe that all of us in this room desire peace. But what we desire is the lowest form of peace that you could possibly have. And let me give you an example. I'll give you an example. See, we're in, you, know, you live your life and there's trials that come. There's hardship that comes. Things are difficult. And what happens is when those trials come, it robs you of your peace. It brings anxieties and worries. And now this, these, this lack of peace and this presence of anxieties are waging war against us. So we cry out to God, right? We ask God, we pray to him, and we ask him to change our circumstances, hoping that if God changes our circumstances, then our peace will come back. This is what we do all the time. But do you notice what you're doing? You are asking God for circumstantial peace. We are asking God for a peace that is lesser than what he desires to give us. Now, it is not bad to ask God to change our circumstances. We are called to cry out to God. Scripture says that you have not because you ask not. We are encouraged to pray for God to change our circumstances. But our peace should not be dependent on that. It should not be dependent on that. You see, we do not serve a God of the bare minimum. We serve a God who seeks to give good gifts to his children. Matthew 7, verse 11 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, God gives a peace that is not circumstantial. God gives a peace that is like him never changing, always available, and never fading. God gives good gifts to his children. And looking at what Paul says in verse 7, he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. The one thing that this verse makes very clear about this peace is that it is a peace that surpasses your understanding. It is a peace that if you're trying to, you know, you know grasp, wrap your mind around it, you will not be able to. It is beyond our ability to understand or even beyond my ability to explain. This kind of peace must be experienced. There's a lot of things about God you can read about. But there's some things about God that you just have to experience. So the question then is this, how do I attain that peace? Right? How do I attain that peace? How do I, not striving for circumstantial, low-grade peace, how do I strive for God's peace? Well, Paul's going to give us two things that we should focus on here in this passage. The first thing is we need to focus on God. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This word rejoice here literally means to be glad, 
to celebrate, be glad. Think about that. It's a command of the Holy Spirit through Paul to you and to me that we should be a people that are marked with rejoicing. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, what a gracious God we serve who makes delight to be a duty and who commands us to rejoice. Should we not at once be obedient to such a command as this? It is intended that we should be happy. See, God has commanded that we rejoice, but the key to rejoicing that leads to peace, rejoicing that leads to God's peace, is not simply rejoicing. It is what are you rejoicing in? What do you rejoice in? He says, rejoice in the Lord. You see, the, fo- excuse me, the focus of your rejoicing is the key. The focus of your rejoicing is the key. You see, the things that hold your focus will be the things that determine your peace. I'll say that again. The things that hold your focus will be the things that determine your peace or lack thereof. See, Philippians, Paul is reminding us, and he's reminding us this morning to rejoice in the Lord. Fix your eyes on him and allow him to bring you joy. Not the circumstantial things of this world, the things that will one day burn up and be gone. Get your eyes off of yourself. You cannot experience God's peace while you continually rejoice in the things that are not Him. You cannot experience God's peace while focusing on yourself. How do we know this? Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And this is why one of the most damning teachings that is so prevalent and popular today is this teaching that you are enough. You have everything that you need. It's deep within you. It's the most anti-gospel message that is just proliferating out of pulpits all across America. This idea that you are enough. We are telling people to drink from a well that provides no water. And as they continually come back telling us that they're still thirsty, we say, you're just not digging deep enough. So what do they do? They dig and they dig and they dig and they dig until eventually they either quit or they die. And if you are here this morning, you are struggling to find peace that you know Scripture promises. I want you to know that that peace is not found deep within you. It is found outside of you. It is found when you get set your eyes off of yourself. It is found by dying to yourself and fixing your eyes on the one whose well never runs dry. Amen. That is where peace is found. You see, when dying people look to dying things for life, they will only find death. When dying people look to dying things for life, they will only find death. Find joy in God. But here's the thing. You can't find joy in a God that you do not know. You cannot rejoice in the Lord if you don't know who he is. See, it isn't simply rejoicing in the fact that there is a God that exists. That does not bring peace. Rather, it is rejoicing in the knowledge of who God is that ushers in God's peace. It's not just, I'm rejoicing in the fact that there is a God that exists. No, 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 no. It's, are you rejoicing in who he is? That's going to bring peace. You see, it doesn't matter if God exists if he isn't good. It doesn't matter if God exists if, he doesn't, if he's not loving. 
See, rather, it is an understanding of who he is that brings peace, and that is worth rejoicing in. I've learned that many Christians, excuse me, that many Christians struggle to find peace because they don't know who God is. Maybe they've heard about him. You know, they pray to him on a regular basis, but they, 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 they don't really know him. And your knowledge of God is directly correlated to how much peace you will experience. This is why we must be very careful when we read the scriptures to keep the main thing the main thing. Here's what I mean. This book, written by the Holy Spirit, God's word to you and to me, is not about you. And it is not about me. This is God's way of divinely revealing to mankind who he is. I do not read the Bible to learn more about myself. I, learn about, I read the Bible to learn about who God is, and in light of who God is, then I'll know everything I need to know about me. This is why when you read the Bible, the first question you should, read after you re, you should ask after you read a passage is not, okay, how do I apply this to my life? See, we're so hungry for peace that we'll skip the process just so that we can get some life application, get my Band-Aid, and I'm good to go. The question is not immediately, how do I apply this to my life? The question is, what does this reveal to me about who God is? And based off of that, now that I know this about God, now how does that impact my life? That's the way we do it. That's what we need to do. Let me, let me play out uh, an, an illustration for you. Okay, So I have a truck that is near and dear to my heart. I love my truck. If you know me, you know that my truck has a name. My truck's name is Old Blue, okay? I got this truck when I was 15 years old. And for the past 13 years, this truck has been ever so faithful to me. We've been through many toils, dangers, and snares, <laughs> right? I love my truck. But lately, Old Blue has been giving me some issues. And occasionally, and when I say occasionally, I mean when I need him the most. <laughs> he won't start. And it, he won't start, but, it, but it's this weird thing, and I'll go into it another time. But it, it's, I wait about 15 minutes, and then it starts right up. I don't ask why. But, you know, you know, and usually I'm like, all right, that's fine. But when I'm running late, I don't have time to wait for my truck to get his attitude to, together, Okay. <laughs> So what I do is I run inside, and if my wife Kayla is home, I'll say, Kayla, I need to, can I use your car today? You know, uh, you know can I get, and <laughs> by the time you leave, it'll be 15 minutes, you just use my truck. You know, he'll be good to go, I promise, right? Um, you know, so I was like, can I use your car? And she says, yeah, no problem. She gives me her keys, and then I'm good to go. But here's the thing. Kayla needs her car. Kayla has a job. She meets with people during the week for discipleship. She, she volunteers here at the church. If her car gets messed up, if her car doesn't make it back home, she has some big issues. I mean, she's putting a lot of trust in me to take that car. And she has no idea what I'm going to do with that car. She has no idea if I had plans later that day to go, you know, you know derby racing with it, right? She has no idea. She has no idea what the day is going to hold when me having her car. But here's the thing. She has total peace. Want to know why? It's not because she knows what I'm going to do with her car. It's because she knows me. And she knows that I know how important that car is. 
See, our relationship with God is very similar. You don't, I don't have to know everything that God is doing in my life if I know who God is. See, even when things are difficult, I don't need to understand, God, why are you doing this? Because if I know that God is good, I know he's doing it for good reasons. If I know that God is faithful, I know that even when it seems like it's hard, he is faithful to his promises. Because, see, my knowledge of God is what provides peace, not my knowledge of the situation. You see, when you, to rejoice in the Lord is to rejoice in a God that is eternal, Colossians 1. A God that never changes, Malachi 3. A God who has no needs and is self-sufficient, John 5. A God who is all-powerful, Psalm 33. A God who is all-knowing, Isaiah 46. A God who is always everywhere and you cannot escape him, Psalm 139. A God who is perfectly wise, Romans 11. A God who is perfectly faithful, Deuteronomy 7. A God who is perfectly good, Psalm 34. A God who is perfectly just, Deuteronomy 32. A God who is perfectly merciful, Romans 9. A God who is perfectly loving, 1 John 4. God who is holy, Revelation 4, and a God who is infinitely beautiful and great, Habakkuk 3. See, when you know who God is, know who God is, and you understand who he is and you make it your goal to keep him as the focus of your life and the focus of what you rejoice in, not in the things of this world, not in the success of your kids, not in the success of your job or your grades or your paycheck, but you're rejoicing in the Lord then you are on your way to godly peace. Skipping ahead, he goes, continues on. He says, let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. It's easier to do that when you know who God is. The Lord is at hand. Now this phrase has two possible meanings here. The first one is meaning that the Lord is near to you, right? That his presence is is close to you and to me. He's not far from us. And the second possible meaning here is that his return is soon. That every day that passes, we're getting closer and closer to seeing our Savior face to face. Which is a good thought. We are getting closer to the day where Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And now, while we don't know exactly what Paul means here, we don't know exactly his meaning, we do know this, that when you know who God is and you are comforted by the character and the nature of God and you rejoice in that knowledge, then this statement that he is near, whether he's near in his presence or he is near in his returning, is a comforting thought regardless. We should be a people that are constantly focused on God. You've probably heard people say this. I've heard people say this. You know, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. But I want you to know that the people who are the most heavenly minded are of the most earthly good. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12. So not only do we fix our eyes, we focus on God. The second thing we knew is we need to focus on prayer. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see, there's a direct correlation between peace and prayer. Notice that Paul pins anxiety and peace against each other. Right? Don't be anxious, pray. See, prayer is the glue that holds the Christian together. You show me a Christian that has no peace, and I will show you a Christian that probably doesn't pray very much. I don't think it's a coincidence that the command to pray comes after the command to rejoice in the Lord. 
Remember what I said when we talk about rejoicing in the Lord, it's rejoicing in what you know to be true about him. You see, when you seek to know God and you seek to learn about him and you make that your focus, I guarantee you the first place you'll notice a difference is in your prayer life. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Now, what should we pray about? Everything. Right? Do not be anxious about anything but in everything. Don't be anxious about anything but in everything. I looked it up in the Greek. You know what it means? Everything. <laughs> everything. There's nothing too small that God does not care about, and there's nothing too big that he cannot handle. I'm sure some of you hear me say this. You know, you're, you're thinking to yourself, you know, really, Mike, everything? Pray about everything? Seems a little excessive. I'm like, okay, you know, here's how I'll respond. All right, you know what? You're right. Maybe it is a little excessive. Here's, the, here's what we could do. Here's what we can do. Okay, so maybe instead of praying about everything, only pray about the things that God knows better than you. <laughs> only pray about those things. But the things that you know better than God, you don't have to worry about praying about those things. You find yourself praying about everything then, don't you? you see, the greatest display of arrogance is a Christian that does not pray. Not only should we pray about everything, but we sh how should we pray? We should pray with thanksgiving. Now, this is not, we're not praying with thanksgiving, thanking God that he's going to give us everything we asked for. When you pray, be thankful that, God, that the God of the universe, the one who holds billions of galaxies in the palm of his hand, listens to you. Listens to you, loves you, and desires to give good gifts to you. Never let that grow old. So now that we have fixed our eyes on Jesus and we have focused our minds and our hearts to take everything to him in prayer, knowing that he is faithful and good, the natural result of that is what Paul says in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we see attaining this peace, and the last thing we want to talk about, it's significantly shorter, so don't worry, okay? <laughs> Talk about attaining this peace, but now we want to talk about applying this peace. What do we do with this peace? John Stott, a noted British pastor and an author, wrote this. He says, the battle of the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. Many of you in this room could probably testify and say amen, hallelujah to that, right? That some of the biggest spiritual battles you face are the ones that go on in your mind. Know this, that when your eyes are fixed on Jesus and our hearts are committed to him in prayer, the peace of God fights that battle for us. The word guard here is a military word. It literally means to keep watch, to prevent hostile invasion. To prevent hostile invasion. You have a sentry posted at the door of your heart and your mind to protect you from the attacks of the enemy. When we talk about the, the armor of God, right, the shield of faith, with the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy, what does that faith do? That faith is focused on God and committed to prayer. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. Now, here's the thing, though. Are we just supposed to live our lives in spiritual self-defense? Now that we have this peace, what do we do with it? You see, I took, I, I had the opportunity, I took karate uh, when I was in, high school and college, and then I had to get a job, and I ran out of time to do karate all of a sudden, right? But 
I took karate, and one thing that my instructor told me, and I'll never forget it, he says, it's self-defense until the fight starts. And then you're on the offense. And what we have to understand as Christians is that the self-defense, God is taking care of the self-defense, but our life as Christians is not to be marked with spiritual passivity. Just God protect me, God protect me. No, we are supposed to be engaged in a spiritual battle. That scripture says that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. I don't know about you, but I've never seen really a whole lot of people using gates as an offensive weapon. What are gates used for? Gates are used to protect someone. They're used as protection. And as the church, we are called to engage darkness. When we talk about above and beyond, going out into the community, searching the lost, knowing that we have victory in the name of Jesus. And we can do this because we have peace in who God is. I'm not worried about what happens to me because I know that I have a peace that does not change. And when I'm not focused on me anymore, I am free to focus on the people that God has called me to. What does Jesus say to his disciples? It says that what the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Perhaps the reason that you and I struggle to do what God has called us to do is because we're not allowing the peace of God to guard our hearts. What does this look like? What does applying this look like with a little bit of time I have left? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Finally, the word finally, Paul is saying, in light of all of this, in light of the fact that you have a joy that is unshakable, in light of the fact that the peace of God guards your heart and your mind, now, now do this. Because you and I have the peace of God ruling over our hearts and our minds, the fruit of that is a mind that dwells on these, th- excuse me, these things. That's what we're talking about here. We're not constantly in spiritual self-defense. We're called to be on the offensive for the kingdom. This list translates pretty well from Greek to English, so there's not a whole lot of elaboration on these terms. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, anything of excellence, anything worthy of praise. See, because we have the Spirit of God, the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds, we are free to dwell on the things of God. See, dwelling on the things of God is the byproduct of someone who is experiencing the peace of God. So what we have to understand is that what you take in is what you will put out. It's not hard. Maybe some of you are trying to focus on God. You are committed to prayer, but you're taking in garbage. And you're curious as to where the peace is. Notice, notice that all of these things that are listed, they can all be found in one thing. Who is more true than Jesus? Who, what could be more honorable than Jesus? Who is more just than Jesus? There is no one more pure than Jesus. 
There is no one more lovely than Jesus. There is no one more commendable than Jesus. No one more excellent than Jesus. And there is no one more worthy of praise than Jesus. See, not only does God's peace allow us to have a healthy thinking, but it allows us to have a relationship with our Savior. What does this do? Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. No, that because of this, we are free to move forward in what God has called us to do. Healthy thinking creates healthy actions. And healthy thinking is not self-help. Healthy thinking is what scripture defines as healthy thinking. But I want us to look at that last part as we close. It says, the God of peace will be with you. Now, I don't think that this is a conditional statement. I don't think Paul is saying, if you do all of this, then the peace of God will be with you. Sorry, then the God of peace will be with you. Notice, there's the peace of God, but now there's the God of peace. Now there's the God of peace. See, God's presence, God being with you is not dependent on what you do for him, right? Ephesians 2, right? We are saved by grace. Not by works. So what does it mean? You want to know how God gives peace? He gives you the God of peace. Think about that. The how, how does God give you his peace? He gives you himself. He gives you himself. He gives you his son. And we do not have a relationship with God through just these, you know, these little gifts that he gives us. It's not a long distance relationship, right? Where he sends us a gift every month or so to remind us that he still cares about us. No, he sends us himself. We talk about Christmas. And what we celebrate as Christians, we celebrate what? God condescending and coming to us. Emmanuel, God with us. And if you want more of God's peace, get more of God. Get more of God. God does this by giving us himself. So when we talk about bridging the gap between what you know and what you experience, first of all, it's going to be bridged by no one other than Christ. Do you want to know why he can do that? Because he bridged a gap that was far bigger. The gap between us and him. See, you cannot have the peace of God if you do not have peace with God. See, you and I are all born sinners. We all have gone astray. We all struggle. We all are naturally rebellious towards God. And because of this, it puts a chasm between us and Him. And no amount of good works, no amount of effort, no amount of right thinking will bridge that gap. Only Christ the first thing you need to understand is that peace with God is made available when we stop striving in our own efforts and we surrender to Christ, knowing that he was flawless and perfect in every way that you and I are not, and that his blood on the cross forgives us of our sins, and his resurrection three days later is proof that we can have a relationship with Jesus. If you're in this room and you are struggling to have peace, Get to know the God of peace. Get to know the God of peace. And the peace of God will follow. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you have called us 
to life everlasting, that God, that you desire to give good gifts to your children and you have made a way for us to be able to live a life, God, that we don't have to wait until we die to experience your blessings, that, Father, that you have made a way for us to experience those things right here and right now. God, I ask that if there's anyone in this room that does not know you, if there's anyone in this room struggling to have peace, God, first and foremost, we ask that they have peace with you. God, if there's anyone in this room that is a Christian, maybe they're just in a season that is, of struggling, Father, help them to know that there are people, brothers and sisters in Christ, that would love to surround them and point them to you. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. We, thankful, we thank you that you are good, and we thank you that we can rejoice in who you are, what you have done, and what you are still doing. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how you can take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.